You're listening to The Fervent Life with Rhea Briscoe, an extension of Snowdrop Ministries. Please stay tuned as Rhea shares her heart with you and challenges you to go deeper with God. For more information on Snowdrop Ministries or Rhea Briscoe, please visit our website at www.snowdropministries.com. Let's join Rhea now as the teaching begins. 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love. I have become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned for Christ, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy It does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things. Love never, ever fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then what is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest, the greatest of these is love. I asked the team to bring their pots and pans tonight and asked Kelsey to be on the cymbal and just clang and, and irritate you with some noise and, and really just get on your nerves with that. Wasn't quite like I pictured uh, when I was thinking about it, but I hope you got the point. And the reason I did that is because the, the, the writer says here that, that if I even speak in tongue, you see, we, we are a charismatic church here, and, and, we'll, and we speak in tongue, do we not? And, and we love prophecy. Anybody besides me love prophecy. And we really, we, we really gravitate to that, and we love that. And I love that, that Paul is talking to the Corinthians who really loved that too. In fact, they loved it to an excess. But, 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 but he, what he's saying to them is, I really don't care if you speak in tongue. I don't care if you can put the best sermon together. I don't care if you speak so eloquently. Rock on with your bad self because if you don't love, if that is not grounded in love, you're just a clanging symbol. You're a gonging metal. And you see, the reason Paul said that is the Corinthians could so understand that picture because you see, there was a, it was a very pagan society that they lived in and, and they would have been familiar with the words that Paul was using there to describe a clanging cymbal and, and, and that loud, obnoxious noise because in the pagan religions that were surrounding them, uh, they, they, they did this thing where they would, uh, they would drink wine and they would, they would dance wildly and, and, and then they would, they would clang on drums and metal in pagan worship. And they would stir up the people emotionally, just banging, 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 banging on these drums. Well, if you weren't pagan and you lived in that society, you still had to put up with that noise and that racket. 
And it would have been annoying, would it not have been? Just a few seconds was annoying, was it not? And so Paul was making a point that they would have understood. What he was saying is, you are meaningless noise. You are empty sound that really has no purpose. I don't care if you can speak in tongue. I don't care how super spiritual you are. Because you see, I've just about had it with super spiritual. We're putting on a good front. We, We might even be able to quote some scripture. We never miss church. But let me tell you what. The Bible says that by their fruit, you're going to know them. When I was a little girl growing up and we would sing this song, uh, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And you see, the most amazing thing about the fruit of the Spirit, you see, love is a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? Love, joy, peace, patience, the list goes on. But the first one is, the fruit of the Spirit is love. (laughs) The Bible says that, that Christ has poured out his love upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That means we have the love that we need. Everything we need to love well, we have been given through the Holy Spirit. We are without excuse. But Paul is living in a society where he's watching people be super spiritual and they're talking about speaking in tongue and how they're better than the other person who doesn't and how they prophesy and and they gravitate and and run around people who do and it's all they want to talk about and they want to see signs and wonders and, and Paul is saying, I really don't care. You can do all of that, but if you do not have love, if it's not grounded in love, it's meaningless. It's a clanging noise. It's annoying. Oh, have you ever been around somebody that's way too super spiritual? But really, there's no fruit in their life. They aren't that much different than the unbeliever down the street in church. I'm just going to tell you, and you know I speak frankly here. But I've just about had it with that. If I can't be the real deal, I don't want to be, the, be anything at all. I've had it with games. There's coming a day when we are going to stand before the Lord. And all facades are going to be, <laughs> are, are going to be washed away. Can I just tell you? The Bible says that man judges by the outward appearance. Oh, you can't walk and look like I do without men judging you. I really don't care. I am my own person. God created me this way. And he's pleased with me. But you cannot be the person I am. You can't have the mouth I have and not be judged by people. And I love the scripture that says, man judges by the outward appearance, but God. God judges by the heart. Can I tell you, I rest knowing he knows my heart. There's no facade here. What you see is what you get. But I love my Jesus. And I hope that my life is grounded in love. I hope that when you bump into me, you bump into my love. I hope I'm not a clanging cymbal. A noisy drum. Meaningless sound. I hope that the love that God has poured out in my heart abounds. What about you? 1 John 13, 35 says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I wonder if that was the only criteria for people to know we were Christians, would people really be able to identify us as one? Our lives need to be marked with love. Our relationships need to be marked by love. Our interactions need to be grounded in love. All that we do throughout our day should be grounded in love because people will know we are Christians by our love. I don't want you to sit there tonight and think, oh, I wish so-and-so could be here. They really need to hear this sermon. Can I tell you what? I'm here, I'm preaching this sermon because I needed to hear this sermon. You're just getting the overflow of it from my life, from what God is teaching me about Rhea's life. I want to just challenge you to not think this is for somebody else like I couldn't when I was putting it together. I want you to think, Lord, what do you want to teach me about love? 
Put your finger on whatever you need to put your finger on. It's interesting, and I'm off my notes already, but let's just flip over to Psalm 139. I was meditating on this passage this week, and in fact, it's what I thought I was going to teach on tonight, and I love Psalm 139. You will know it. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's that passage, but I love that it starts out by saying, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path. You're acquainted with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. You know everything about me. Where can I go from your spirit? I can't get away from you, Lord. You, you are everywhere, and you know everything about me. But it's interesting to me that it starts, oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. But look how it ends. Flip, go over to the very last verse. He, he says in verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. It's interesting to me. This really, it's like, a, it's like you're listening to a symphony and then all of a sudden some rock and roll uh, player starts to just play away on his guitar. Are you, can you get the picture? You're listening to classical music and then all of a sudden you hear who, I don't even know a rock and roll, who, give me a good rock and roll guy that, that just really can play, what's that guitar called? Help me, electric guitar. So can you just imagine then break again with an electric guitar? That's kind of how this passage works. He starts by saying, oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me, you had me in behind and before. Such knowledge is too lofty for me. It, 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 it's, it's all about him. This is what you do for me, Lord. I can't go from your spirit. I can't flee from your presence. And it's just this beautiful passage. And then all of a sudden, he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Depart from me, you bloodthirsty men. And, and you're like, wow, that's the electric guitar coming in there. All of a sudden, it was a symphony. And then, bam, depart from me, you bloodthirsty men. And, 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 and I want you to slay the wicked, Lord. And that like bothered me all week long. And I'm like, that is such a hard break, Lord. Why? I believe in the continuity of scripture. I believe you keep everything in context, Lord. And, and so why would he start by saying all these wonderful things? You'd knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Slay the bloodthirsty men, Lord. Why? Anybody besides me bothered by that just a little bit? And so what, what I'm seeing there then is he comes right back. He's pointing out, you know, here are my enemies, Lord, and they look really bad, and they're doing all these horrible things, and do I not hate those who hate you? And, and then he says, but search me, O oh God, and know me. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me. And I love that because what he's saying is, you know, I, I, he's, he's in the symphony and then he breaks into that electric guitar and he says, slay the bloodthirsty men. And what he's saying is, Lord, this is how I see them, but could you just search me and know me? I, I might have some blind spots that I'm not seeing, Lord God. Could you just, that word search means to dig down in. It means to excavate. I love to go, those of you that are coming with us to the Holy Land, you will see sites where they have excavated and it's so cool to see. It's, they unearth all this, you know, like Jericho is really a cool place to go because you, they're unearthing places they, they didn't even know were there and, and they're, they're just carefully sweeping away dirt and finding, you know, they have to be very careful and they're finding all these artifacts and, and it's just, it's a fun thing to go see and that's what that word is there excavate me lord because i might have some hidden stuff in me that i don't want to see because you see we are deceived by the pride of our heart are we not the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked my mind my heart my wine my mind my will my emotions is what that means <laughs> deceitful above all things I, I i'm deceived by the pride of my heart I might think something of myself, but really I don't want to look at that place in my life that really needs God to put his finger on it and clean it up. And that really is this love chapter for me. It was an area where God says, I'm searching you, Rhea. You've asked me to search you. Now I'm searching you. I'm excavating. And here's a little area that I want you to work on, dear one. Now, I want you to know that as we go down through this passage, you are not to walk away condemned tonight. This is not about you feeling condemned and that you don't measure up. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that empowers you to walk out all God has called you to do. The same grace that saved you is the, is the grace that, that after his love has been poured out on our life enables us to walk out and love the unlovable, the bloodthirsty men. 
And so while I want you to look at your own life and say, Lord, where am I lacking as far as love goes? I don't want you to leave condemned. But I do want you to leave convicted. You see, I think sometimes, I'm just going to be frank with you. You know that's who I am. I shoot from the hip. And I'm just going to tell you, I think sometimes we like to go to churches that tickle our ears, that that leave us with a feel-good message that we can leave on Sunday morning, never have to change anything, but feel really good about it. How is that working for you? Because I believe that when we get under the word of God, it should convict, it should change. We should be challenged by it. Not in a works mentality. The same grace that saved us is what's enabling us to obey it. But being able to say, search me, God. Put your finger on anything in me that I'm not seeing that you want to clean up. And that's really what this chapter uh, was for me. Remember that Paul is, is with people who have given an appearance of being spiritual, but weren't loving. They weren't displaying uh, the, the love of God in their life, along with all of those super spiritual things they were doing. And I just want to tell you, I don't care how good we look. I don't care how many scriptures you can quote. I don't care if you're, if you're Sunday. When I was a little girl growing up, we got little like medals for, every, for perfect attendance in Sunday school. I love to have that hanging on my wall with perfect attendance. It's just me. It's who I was. And I don't care how perfect your attendance is. What I care about, because the Bible says that faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Everything else is going to fade away, but what you're going to be left with is love will endure forever. Are you loving well? Are you loving well? If not, what we're doing is empty and meaningless sound. I, I saw a Peanuts cartoon. Don, you love Peanuts, I know that. But, but, but I saw a Peanuts cartoon this week, and it showed Lucy. Everybody familiar with Lucy, or am I, am I dating myself? But Lucy is standing there with her arms folded with this really stern look on her face, and Charlie Brown is pleading with her, and, and he says, Lucy, you must be more loving. The world really needs love. You have to let yourself love and make the world a better place. And Lucy angrily uh, turns around and and slams him down and, and says, Look, blockhead, the world I love, it's people I don't. I laughed when I read that and I thought, you know, that's it's just it's it's funny, but isn't it what we think sometimes? The world I love, it's people. I don't. We're going to look at tonight what love really looks like. And many of you are familiar with this passage in, in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. You hear it at weddings often. But tonight we're going to look at it in a little deeper depth. And I, you might even be able to quote it. You might know it by heart. But, but I want you to let God probe you tonight. I want you to let him put his finger on things in your life that maybe need cleaned up a little bit. 1 Corinthians 13, if you want to turn there uh, with me, I I want you to just ask yourself, what exactly is love? Love is described by verbs most often because it's an action word. Love is a decision that we make. It's not a feeling. I think we confuse love with feelings and emotions, and that's why so many people are getting divorced because I don't love them anymore. Well, love isn't about a feeling. It's not this feel-good, you know, fuzzy, warm feeling inside of you. It's a decision that we make. It's a decision that we make. And we're going to see that in this passage. Uh, As I said, first and foremost, I want you to understand that that love is a fruit of the Spirit. And and it's interesting to me, if if you've ever seen a fruit tree, when I was a little girl growing up in rural Pennsylvania, we had orchards all around our house. And I would love about this time of year to go apple picking in the orchard. And and, and so I loved it. I loved to watch the apple trees get the little blooms on them and, and then watch them, you know, these tiny apples turn into these massive, red, yummy, delicious apples that we would go and pick. And, and what's interesting to me is that fruit didn't say, I have to, I have to bear fruit. I, you know, the, it wasn't striving to become fruit. Fruit just bears. It, you just abide in the tree, in the vine, if you will. And fruit will pop out. Fruit doesn't have to strive to be made. It just abides and it happens. And can I just tell you what? The fruit in our life 
comes when we abide. Some of you, you're super spiritual. Let's put me in there. Some of us are super spiritual, and, and we, we really know a lot of scripture. We never miss Bible study. But how much abiding are you doing? Abiding is, is dwelling in his presence. It's living in his presence. There is no greater place. I'm just going to tell you, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Everything fades away. I've had a hard day. Anybody besides me had a hard day? Leslie, I had a hard day. I had a hard day. And so much of it, Dave, if I'm lying, I'm dying, am I not? So much of it was because of people who are not loving well. Who are Christians, if you will. I'm not even sure. Who are Christians. But you sure would not know it by their love. And church, I'm just, I said, Satan, you bugger, you messed with the wrong person. I'm preaching on love tonight. We're going to pitch everything else out the window. We're going to talk about love. And I'm going to do it passionately because here's what I want to tell you, church. I've just about had it with the church not acting like the church should be acting. I'm just tired of it. We are no different than the unbeliever down the street. People don't know us by our love. They don't know us by our kindness. They don't know us by our gentleness. They don't know us because we're willing to sacrifice for somebody else. No, here's what we do. I feel like saying that, so I think I might. I think you need to hear this, so I'm going to tell you. Somebody needs to put you in your place. Obviously, you're blind to this area in your life. I better point it out to you. Church, it grieves me to the core of my being. My mama used to say to me, Rhea, you are the only Bible that some people are ever going to read. So be very careful how you're living. Are you making a deposit in every person's life that you meet day in and day out? I walked in tonight, and, and I happened to catch uh, uh, our son Danny, and, and my heart just swelled with love for him. It's easy to love people who are easily lovable. It's hard to love people that are hard to love. But the Bible says that his love has been poured out abundantly in my life so that now I can pour it out on other people. I'm without excuse. So let's see what that love looks like. I think sometimes we confuse, we, ha we have only one word for love in the English language. I love my husband Dave, I love him. But I love cheeseburgers and french fries. Like I think I might stop at Portillo's on my way home tonight. I'm I'm tasting it, and I love them. Like, I makes my mouth water kind of, I hate salads, but I love cheeseburgers and french fries. I love them. I love them with mayonnaise. I love them. And, but see, I'm, at a, I, I'm limited because I, I, I say the same word for love, cheeseburgers and, and french fries, for what I love my man. That's just not right. Is it? But see, in the, in the original language, in the Greek language, in the Bible, there were several words for love. And many of you will know the top four love words. One is phileo. It's where we get our word Philadelphia. It means a brotherly love. It's a, it's a picture of affection. A love between friends, if you will. And then there's stergo, which is a familiar love. It's a love between a parent and a child. It's a, a devotion, a, the devotion that's found in a family. And then there's eros, it's where we get our word erotic, and it's, it's, where it's a sexual kind of love, it's a, it's a fleshly love. It's a love that seeks to fulfill its own desires. It's a love that focuses on self and its own pleasures. But lastly, there's agape, and that's the word that is used in 1 Corinthians 13, agape. And it's a love that's, that, that is that it's the highest form of love. It's, it, some, some Bibles will have a tagline that says the more excellent way. It's God's love for us. When uh, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, that word love there is agape. He agaped the world. And, and how does that finish? For God so loved the world, he gave. It's a love that gives looking for nothing in return. It's a love that is, that is, is self-sacrificial. 
It's not expecting anything to come back to it. It just gives, it just pours out. It's not a warm, fuzzy kind of love. It's not an all about me kind of love. It's a love that makes a decision to love. It's a love that's rooted in choice. Rick Renner, I love him. He's one of my favorite, uh, um, he, he, he's a Greek scholar and I love to read his definitions and I want to read you his definition of agape and I'm hesitant to do that. They say that you should never read long definitions from the pulpit because you lose people and I just want you to stay with me because I'm gonna break that rule because so much of what he says is so profound and I don't want you to miss this definition. I think in order to really understand the verses that we're going to look at, you have to have an understanding of agape. And his definition is so, so profound. He says, agape occurs when an individual sees, recognizes, understands, and appreciates the value of an object or a person, causing the viewer to behold this object or person in great esteem, awe, admiration, wonder, and sincere appreciation. Think about God's love for us when you're, hearing, when you're listening to this definition. Such great respect is awakened in the heart of the observer for the object or person he's beholding that he is compelled to love it. In fact, his love for that person or object is so strong that it's irresistible. Agape is a love that loves so profoundly that it knows no limits or boundaries in how far, wide, high, and deep it will go to show that love to its recipient. If necessary, agape love will even sacrifice itself for the sake of that object or person it so deeply cherishes. Agape is the highest form of love, a self-sacrificial type of love that moves the lover to action. Agape is a love that has no strings attached. It isn't looking for what it can get, I love this, but for what it can give. It's all of the one who is loved is so deep that it's compelled to shower love upon that object or person regardless of the response. When you love with such pure love that you expect nothing back in return, it's impossible for you to feel hurt or let down by the response of the recipients of your love. You don't love them for the purpose of getting something in return. You shower them with love simply because you love them. It's a love that lays down its life for another. That's why uh, you, you read in 1 John 3 where it says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also, it says, ought to lay down our life for the brethren. We need to lay down our life for one another. That means I die to what I want in order to give you what you want. That's, that is following the example of Christ, is it not? It's what we're called to do. The Father loved us to the point of self-sacrifice. Jesus, agape love, drove him to the cross. And the same way we are expected to agape love our brothers and our sisters. And if we are truly operating in agape, they don't, and they don't respond in like fashion, we have no right to be offended or hurt because we aren't looking for a response. We're not looking for them to give anything back to us. It's a self-sacrificial love. Oh, I want to learn that, Lord. This is the kind of love that we as Christians are called to display. A love that actively seeks the benefit and the good of another. You say, well, Rhea, you don't know who I'm living with. You, you don't know this person at work and how impossible they are. You don't know how mean my, neighborhood, my neighbor is or how controlling my mother is. You don't know, Rhea, you're expecting me to agape love them. You don't know how strong the love of the Father is. You say, well, Rhea, I have a right. What would happen if Christ had utilized his rights? Because if anybody had a right not to lay down their life for another, it was him. But he chose to do it. His agape love drove him to do it. Now what if we, who have that agape love within us, what if we chose to pour that out on other people in the same way? What if we chose to respond in the same manner as Christ responded to us? Isn't that the least we could do? Agape love is like the Energizer Bunny. Bunny, it never runs out. It's always there. And, and God's love in us will never run out. When you choose, and it's a choice, it's a decision to love like Christ loved. When you choose to do that, it will never run out. But you have to do it regardless of, of how it's responded to. It's not based on feeling. It just keeps giving and it never runs out. 
So Paul says, this is what's expected of you. Now let me tell you what it looks like. It's patient. Let's look at that word patient. That word patient means to be of long spirit. I'm getting these definitions from the Strong's Concordance. And and it means to be of long spirit, not to lose heart. It means to persevere patiently and bravely. I love this. To persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles. It means to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. It means to be mild and slow in avenging. It means to be long-tempered. Patient love bears with people and their weaknesses and their faults. And it gives them room to change and actually believes they will and that they can with God's help. Patient love overlooks offenses and patiently bears with people that hurt us. I'm not going to get you back. I'm going to be patient with you. I believe you're a work in progress just as I am, and I'm going to forgive you for that, and I'm going to be patient with you because that's what God expects of me. Ray Fowler says it's choosing to love another not because of who they are, but in spite of who they are, in spite of what they do to you or have done to you. It's a love which understands the frailty of human nature and refuses to take offense. It's a love that sees potential, the potential in people, and does not demand instant maturity or growth. It's a love which continues to desire the best for others, even when it's slandered or abused. Patient love can be wounded over and over, and it will bear up under it. It won't retaliate. Anybody taking notes besides me? One of the early church fathers said the word for patient is the word that is used when a man who's wronged and who, is easily, who easily has it in his power to avenge but will choose to never do it. That's patient love. I, I love it. It's like Peter when he came to Jesus. You'll remember the story. Peter came to Jesus and he, he says, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Seven times? And I think he thinks he's being all that in a bag of potato chips. I think he thinks he's being pretty hotsy-totsy. And he's saying it loud so, you know, the other disciples, this is how spiritual I am. I'll forgive them seven times, Jesus. And Jesus, I, I can just almost hear the chuckle in his voice. Oh, Peter, not seven times, but seven times, seventy. And I don't think it's because he wants us to do the math there and, and have Peter get to, you know, what is that? Seven times 70 is 40, 490. I think it's not because he wants Peter to get to 450 and say, only 40 more times. I only got 40 more times to forgive this and then I can get my way. I don't think that's what it's all about. I think he's saying, Peter, Peter, love is patient. It bears with the offenses of others. It lets, it lets them wound you and you love them anyway. Seven times 70, Peter. It sees the good in them, regardless of whether they're behaving that way or not. And it's patient. And it lets them mature because you know why? Because it's trusting God. It's trusting God. It's realizing that, you know what? My life is controlled by God. I really don't care if you like me or don't like me. I'm not, it's not a popularity contest. It is about me loving well because I'm loved well. Because I'm loved well. Love is patient. It's kind. Oh, church, we got to get this one. Kind, to show oneself mild, to be kind, comes from the root, and and get this, don't miss this. It means to be kind. And it comes from the root word, to be fit for use. Boy, that stung me today. Because what I realized is, if I'm not kind and loving, am I really fit for use? There's nothing I want more in this whole wide world than for God to use me. It is the cry of my heart. I don't feel like life is worth anything if we are not a vessel that God can can use. There isn't any other meaning to this life. We exist for the glory of God. I want to be fit for use. You can't be if you're not kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's the kindness of God, the word says, that leads to repentance. John MacArthur says, love suffering endures the injuries of another. Long suffering, patience, endures the injuries of another. And kindness pays them back only with good deeds. 
So love is patient, love is kind. Patience endures the injury of another, but kindness pays them back with good deeds. It goes a step further. Oh, Lord, you want me to love like that? Yes. Today I was thinking about my children. I have seven children, for those of you that don't, don't know me. If you want me to really like you... <laughs> Be kind to my children. (laughs) Isabella is sitting here tonight, and Isabella and Mark take Kendall and Kate once or twice a year and just lavish love on them. And Kendall can hardly wait to go to Miss Isabella's house. Isabella's always been my friend. But when she is kind to my daughter, it makes me love her all the more. When we are kind to God's children, regardless of how they treat us, if we can look at them and say, this is God's child, he loves them. No matter how they're treating us, he loves them. And I think I just might be nice to his child. I think I might just be kind to his child. Now, if his child's a spoiled, rotten brat and wants to be mean back to me, that's their problem but I'm going to be kind to God's children. Love does not envy. That word envy means to be jealous, to be heated or boil with envy, to desire earnestly or to pursue. And this is the kind of person that can't be happy for another when they succeed or, 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 or they want something that that other person has. They're jealous of it. They can't celebrate giftings. They, they want to tear that person down instead of build them up. They, they seethe with envy and jealousy because somebody is, 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 has something they don't have. What is up with that church? What is up with that? I have seen it. I've seen it on pastoral staffs where they compete with each other. They tear one another down in order that they look better. What is up with that church? I said to Leslie the other day, if I ever saw stuff like that on my team, I have the best team on this Monday night Bible study. And if I ever saw them treating one another like that, they would not be on my team any longer. Because this team loves and they build up and they encourage and they edify one another. They do not tear down. Because the word says love is not boastful. It's not proud. It's not self-seeking. You see, all of those words are, it's all about me. I have to look good at your expense. And if I tear you down, I'll look better. Are you kidding me? And if I can boast about what I have, maybe you'll think I'm better. If I don't let you look good, maybe I'll look better. I can't let you excel because then what does that say about me? Church, you have no idea how this grieved me when I read it. When you start looking up those words and you realize that we are acting like this, church, it should not be. We are called to love one another. Love rejoices when somebody excels. Love sees a gift in somebody and calls it out. They don't quench it. I want you to look good. I'm going to make you look as good as I can. And I'm going to look for nothing in return because that's what love does. James 3.14 says, but if you have bitter envy, bitter envy and self-seeking, Love is not self-seeking is the next one. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not come from above. It is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit without partiality, and without hypocrisy. True love wants the best for others and does not take self into account. It does not boast. It is not proud or puffed up. That's the clanging symbol. Have you ever been around somebody that can only talk about themselves 
and their problems. And, and you want to greet them, but you know you're going to hear everything about their life and how awful it is, and they're never going to ask about yours. That's self-seeking. Proud. Boastful. That's not agape love. Self-seeking is it's all about me. What makes me happy regardless of what it does to you. Agape puts the other person first. Selfishness is the exact opposite of agape love. Alan Redpath says the secret of every discord in Christian homes, communities, and churches is that we seek our own way and our own glory. We promote self at the expense of the other person. But agape love always defers to others. It doesn't want its own way. You say, well, Rhea, I have a right and God wants me happy. Really? That kind of happiness. You see, what I've found and and I've only found this because, just let me finish. What I've found is that when I can love somebody who's hurting me, when I can choose to forgive and to lavish love, God wants me happy happens. The peace comes. When I put somebody else first, the peace comes. When I am most consumed with myself and all my problems and all my pain, and that's all I can think about, if in that moment I make a choice to put somebody else first and do something kind and loving for somebody else or serve somebody else, it's amazing to me how quickly my own pain can dissipate. Here's my favorite. Love is not easily angered. Some of your translations say easily angered. That word easily is not in the original language. It's not in the Greek. Uh, it, translators put that word there because I think they, you know, they're thinking love is not angered. Oh, that's a little hard because, you know, I kind of get angry sometimes. I'm, I'm just not easily angered. How about that one? Let's put easily in there. But in the original language, easily is not there. It's love is not angered. And that word angered means to make sharp to sharpen, to, to spur on, to irritate, provoke, to arouse, to anger, to make angry, to exasperate. But, but it's a compound word. The first, the first part of the word means to come alongside, and the second part of the word means to poke or to prod or to jab. It's a picture of coming alongside of somebody and being angered and irritated with them, and so you jab and you poke them with your words. Oh, I'm going to get a good one in here. Have you ever been around somebody who's, you can't say they were angry, they never raised their voice, but man, could they poke with their words. Love is not easily angered. It's not angered. It doesn't poke, it doesn't prod. It only looks for the best in the person. It doesn't have a hair trigger temper. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Oh, I, I like this one because, you know, women, you, you, man, I can't talk to you men because I don't think you're like this, but women, anybody besides me, black book of hell. That's what Dave calls it. You got your black book of hell out again. I'm just being honest with you. You know where you keep everything he's ever said 20 years and beyond, and you still remember it right here, baby. I can whip that thing out. Remember, 30 years ago when you said this, I'm keeping a record of wrongs. I tally those things in my ledger book of life. Are, are you with me? And I can pull that baby out in no time. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. What if God kept a record of wrongs, church? Who in this room, I know you're all super spiritual, I know you are, but who in this world could stand? If God kept a record of our wrongs, just what we did this morning, if God kept a record of them, who could stand? And yet we want to keep a record of everybody. I'm talking to myself. I'm preaching to myself. I don't care if you're getting anything out of this. I'm just preaching to myself. And, and, but we want to keep a record of other people's wrongs. Remember when you did this? I'm not going to let you forget it because if I let you forget this, you might start doing it again. So can I just pull out my black book of hell and remind you? Keep you on your toes. Can't have you go back there again. Maybe if I shame you, you won't ever want to do that again. No. 
Love is not easily angered and it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It always looks for the best, always. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices with truth. Here's what I want to tell you. I, I, it's not, it doesn't look for vengeance. Jesus was not hanging on the cross saying, you know what, when I get down here, baby, I'm going back for those guys that, that, that put that, that, that sword in my side. I'm going to go back to those people who spit on me and pulled my hair on my beard, and I'm going to teach them a thing or two. He wasn't up there saying that. What was he saying? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That's love. It doesn't look to avenge itself. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's not easily angered. It's not easily provoked. And it sure doesn't delight in evil. It doesn't look for vengeance. It doesn't say, well, they got what they had come and I was waiting for that day. How many of you, if you're being truthful, have ever heard that somebody, something happened in their life and you were like, hmm, they got what they had to come in. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. I really like how that's, how that's worded in the um, New King James. It says, um, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Oh, I, I, just, I, I just saw this. So it's not even in my notes, so I don't know if I can, I can articulate the way I saw it, but love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. It doesn't rejoice when somebody is, is doing something wrong and is, and is walking in unrighteousness. It, it's, it doesn't rejoice when somebody gets caught drinking. It doesn't rejoice when somebody gets a DUI. It doesn't rejoice when somebody, uh, get, their husband leaves them for another woman. It, it, it rejoices in the truth when that person really understands who they are and begins walking in the truth. It celebrates that. I want you to be everything God called you to be. You are so much better than that. You're so much better than that. Just recently, uh, somebody, I was talking to somebody about something they had done that they were not proud of, and, and, and I said to them, you're so much better than this. I wish you could see that. I wish you could see what I see, that you are so much better than that. And I'm not going to rejoice in your iniquity. I'm going to rejoice when you understand who you are and you begin to walk in that. You see, if we only knew who we were. Love always protects. Oh, that's so good. That word protects means to cover. It's to, to thatch. It, it means to cover over with silence. It, it means to, to, um, to, to roof over. I like that a lot. You know the scripture that says love covers a multitude of wrongdoing. How many of you, when somebody wrongs you, do you go call all your friends and say, let me just say what they just did to me? And, and they said this, and they did this, and can you even believe they did this? And they said they're Christians. I mean, have you ever done that? Or let me just tell you what I heard about so-and-so. No, love covers a multitude of wrongdoing. Love doesn't tear another person down for their benefit, even when they have a right to. Love covers it, it thatches it over, it puts a roof over it, and it silences it. Love always trusts. Uh, here's, I had a little trouble with this one. Because, I don't know, just put yourself, has anybody ever really hurt you? Like, not a nice person. What do they call them? Toxic person. Have you ever known a toxic person who just hurts you? Like you hurt, they, you, they hurt you, you forgive them, they hurt you again twice as hard. You forgive them, they nail you again. Are you with me? And you think, I'm not making that mistake again. But God says forgive. So how do you do that, Rhea? How do you always trust when they have proven they are not trustworthy? Oh, because you're putting your trust in the wrong person. Because I may not be able to trust Karen but I can trust God with Karen. I may not be able to trust that Karen isn't going to hurt me, but I can trust that God, whatever he allows in my life is for a purpose and that I can trust him with my heart and with my life. Love always trusts. It always believes. Look at that. It always hopes. and It, it, it doesn't... Uh, 
It doesn't prophesy failure. It doesn't speak failure over somebody. This is who you always are. It's who you've always been. It's what you're going to be. It doesn't prophesy failure. Love always hopes. It sees the best and it calls it out. This is not who you are. But I know what God can do in your life. The basis of that hope is that God is faithful to his promises. Love always perseveres to, ver- it, to persevere under misfortunes and trials, to hold fast to one's faith in Christ, to endure, to bear bravely and calmly ill treatments. The word endure, says Stephen Cole, is a military word meaning to sustain the assault of an enemy. I wanted to teach on warfare. I've been studying warfare for a couple weeks. I really thought I was going to start doing a short series on spiritual warfare. Because what, what I, I really know, and I think most of you know, is that we do not battle against flesh and blood. Your, your battle is not Susie down the street. Your battle is not Tom at work. Your battle is not your ex-wife. You, your battle is not, uh, is not your co-worker. You do not battle against flesh and blood. You battle against principalities and evil forces. It is an unseen battle. It's a battle in the heavenlies. It's a war in the heavenlies. Do you understand that there is a spiritual realm that we are ignorant of? We really like to live in the natural, but you see, the things of the spirit are spiritually discerned and the natural man cannot understand them. And so if we don't ever question that spiritual realm, then we are just going to live in the natural, not understanding anything that's going on in our life. But there is a battle, and it's an unseen battle that's raging in the heavenlies for you. And, and, and the battle is to draw you away from the goodness of God, to get you to question God's goodness in your life, to get you to, to, to trip up, to, 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 to tempt you, to draw you away, to entice you out of God's presence. That's the battle. My son Tyler said, if the enemy can't keep you out of hell, he's going to at least let you live like hell, make you live like hell here on earth. And that's what we, that's what, what we allow him to do. Because there's that battle going on in the unseen realm. And if we understood that we don't battle against flesh and blood, that this is the enemy of our soul, and maybe he found that person and used them as a tool to get to us, but really it was never about them anyway. It was about the enemy of our soul, the unseen battle. You see, if we understood that, if we understood that love always endures because it is a military term meaning to sustain the assault of an enemy, we would dig down in and say, you know what? I'm going to lavish love on that person that just got used as a tool by the enemy. I'm going to lavish love. Love never fails. This is my favorite. That word fails means to fail powerless, to fall to the ground, to be without effect. Oh, I love it. Because you see, when we make the decision to love, it's a decision, not a feeling to love. But we make the decision to love, it will never fail. It will never be without effect. And that's what I'm seeing in my life, that no matter how difficult the circumstances that I might be living in, no matter how hurt I might be by somebody, no matter how justified I might be in slamming them or getting them back, if I choose love, it will never fail. That's a promise from God. It will never be without effect. It will never be powerless. It will always overcome because love overcomes a multitude of wrongdoing. That's God's word. That's not Rhea's word. But what would happen, church, if we really began to utilize his word and believe it? What would happen if we really used it as a weapon? Oh, if we used it as a weapon. You see, there is a difference between having a stockpile of weapons when, a, when, when an army goes out and they have a stockpile of weapons that are available to them, there's something different than knowing I have a weapon available and when I have one in my hand and that I'm skillful with it. I'm skillful with it. Give me somebody that's skillful with the sword over somebody that's never shot a gun any day of the week because somebody who's skilled with that sword can do a lot of damage. Can I tell you about the weapon we have? It's the word of God. And what would happen, church, if we started to really wield that weapon, if we started to use it, if we became skilled with that weapon, and we said, you know what, enemy? I'm not fighting against flesh and blood. I'm not gonna attack that person. I'm not gonna hate that person. I'm not gonna be rude to that, because love is not rude. I'm not gonna be rude to that person. 
I'm going to wield my sword. And I'm going to love because it overcomes a multitude of wrongdoing. And I'm going to forgive because God told me to forgive because he forgives me. And I am going to lavish, lavish, lavish the love of God. And I am going to shine like a city on a hill. And I'm going to look different than the unbeliever down the street. And we are going to build an army that's going to take Milwaukee because we're going to change lives one life at a, cha- one life at a time if we allow God's word to change us first. But we've got to shine The Bible says shine as you hold out the word of God. But what we're doing is we're holding out the word of God. We're preaching to people. We're talking about come with me to Bible study. But then we're not living any different. I don't know what would happen if we really started living what we believe. You say, Maria, there's so much wrong that's been done to me. Let me just read you one last scripture before we close. Um, 1 Peter 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and of wearing gold or fine jewelry or fine clothing. Now, men, just put yourself in this. It's for women, but just put yourself there. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. I just want to look, not at that whole passage, but the word gentle and quiet spirit. Because when I read that, I mean, you guys know me. There's one thing Rhea Briscoe is not, and it's gentle. I'm telling you, the word of God is in me, and I want to spew it out. I want to, I just, I'm like drinking water out of a fire hydrant. I just, I got a lot to say, and I, sometimes I'm not gentle in saying it. So I read that, and I'd be like, Lord, that's going to be your best miracle since crossing the Red Sea, you making Rhea gentle. And, And I felt like he was saying, you need to look up the word. And so I looked it up, and here's what it says. This is coming right out of the Greek dictionary. Meekness towards God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. In the Old Testament, the meek are those who wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Thus, meekness towards evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict that he is using them to purify his elect and that he will deliver his elect in his time. A gentle and a meek spirit is saying, God, I'm just going to rest here. I'm going to do what you call me to do. And I'm going to trust that you're using this thing to purify me and that in your due time, you're going to deliver me from this and you're going to get glory and honor and praise from every last bit of it. That's how we can do this. That's how we can love like that. That's how we don't have to get revenge. We don't have to be easily angered. We don't have to be rude. Oh, guys, I skipped over that word rude. I don't know how I did that, but let me just tell you. Do you know the difference we can make if we just pause and be kind to somebody? If we hold a door for somebody? If we smile? If we just say something kind? I look for people. I, I look, is, are they down in the dumps? Can I find something true? I don't want to be fake, but, but can I find something true that I can say to really encourage them today? I mean, that, that's so much fun. Leslie, do I not? I, we look for ways to do this. We, we should be like a scouts on a mission. We're on a mission for God. How can we deposit his love? As we go throughout our day, how can we speak life into somebody instead of draining out of them? How can we be kind and loving, not hateful and rude? I know you're busy. I know you have stress. But we are without excuse, guys. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives within us. That's the power that can get you to love your enemy. That's the power that can get you to love your spouse when they're really unlovable and doing some pretty rotten things. That's the power that can get you to treat that coworker with respect even though they make your day miserable. So as you go out this week, let's change a world. We can change a world for him. We're his agents, undercover agents for God. 
take that assignment this week and ooze love wherever you go. Look for ways. Look for ways to leave people with that kind of love. You are the only Bible some people are ever going to read. Let them see the Jesus in you and be drawn to it. What does Francis of Assisi says? Preach Christ always. When necessary, use words. We preach Christ with our life, with our kindness, with our love, with our compassion, our mercy, our goodness. So go this week and preach Christ. I'm going to ask Kelsey to come and close, but let me just pray for you as we go. And um, so thankful for Kelsey and the ministry she has here. But let me just pray for you before you leave, and then you can, uh, you can take off. Father, I thank you for each person here. I thank you, Father, that your word, your word is true, it's powerful, it's active, it doesn't ever return void in our life. And I pray, Father, that as the seed of your word has gone out into hearts and minds tonight, Lord, that it would take root, that it would reap a harvest, Lord God. Not, not 30, not 60. I'm asking for a hundredfold harvest, Lord, to come from their life because of the seed that was planted tonight. I thank you that your word is forever settled in heaven. Now tonight, Lord, I pray that it would be settled in our hearts. I pray that we'd be challenged by this word, Lord God, that there would be one nugget of truth that each person would leave here with tonight, that they would be able to apply to their life today. And Lord, that they would conform, that I would conform more and more to your image, I pray. Bless each one now, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Rhea or Snowdrop Ministries, please visit our website at www.snowdropministries.com or call 414-581-8150. We pray God blesses you as you go and live out a fervent life.